Hi, this is Jay Todd Anderson, and you are listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. And it is our pleasure to welcome Jay Todd Anderson. Jay Todd, good afternoon and welcome. Hello. Also, George Williman uh, with us today. Hello. Welcome, and we have been celebrating the Wizard of Oz in song and spirit all afternoon because it is on this day that we celebrate the Wizard of Oz as a perfect film. Just quickly, if you would kindly tell us the criteria again for what it is if you are going to qualify for the filmically perfect notion. What do you got there? Well... J. Todd Anderson and George Willman's basic rules for this, and all our arguments are building these, built on these rules. They must create the world they exist in. All these movies create the world they exist in. And they wholly sustain that world. Regardless of changes in society, they retain their meaning and entertainment values. <laughs> Which is definitely true of The Wizard of Oz. Let's just quickly do a, uh, George, if you'd be so kind as to give us a little overview of The Wizard of Oz. Exactly what is the action in this perfect film? Well, this is for those of you out here who have never had the opportunity to see this movie. Uh, basically, it's about a young girl, Dorothy Gale, who lives in Kansas with her aunt and uncle. Um, she gets whisked away in a cyclone along with her house and her dog. Uh, and the dog the, starts all the problems in this movie. Always. That's true. <laughs> and uh, the house lands in the middle of Munchkin Land in the Land of Oz and also lands on the Wicked Witch of the East, which, of course, upsets her sister, the Wicked Witch of the West. Only because she wants her slippers. That's all. She doesn't care about her sister. <laughs> and so the, the good witch, Glinda, sends Dorothy on an expedition to the Emerald City to see the Wizard of Oz, whom she says can get her home. Yeah, and Glenna makes it a point to say only bad witches are ugly. And yeah, along the way, the, the main body of the film, of course, is the trip to Oz, where she meets uh, three characters, the Scarecrow, a Tin Woodsman, and a Cowardly Lion. And they all have some flaw. Uh, she, of course, she wants to get home, and the others have some aspect of themselves that prevents them from being a fully rounded human being, and they head on this trek together to get fulfillment. They're all there to support her dream. Aww. Yeah. Yeah. So then basically they get there, the wizard tells them, uh, no problem, I'll, I'll give you these things, but you have to destroy the Wicked Witch of the West, uh, which they manage to do by accident. Right. Yes. Uh, so they get back to the Emerald City, um, they discover the wizard is a complete fraud, and but he does manage to give them the things they want and tries to take Dorothy home, but of course being a fraud messes that up. And then the good witch appears and tells Dorothy that she's had the ability to go home right from the beginning, nice, and um, and sends her home by clicking her heels together, and she goes back to the uh, sepia-toned world of Kansas. Yes, which she finds far more desirable than this really cool world that she's in, you know, with all this color and it goes back before to drugs, you know, this really great place. <laughs> I think that's evidence that people were taking drugs before we actually recognized it. 1939, this movie was released. That takes some serious imagination, but I think we have uh, Frank Albaum really to, uh, to thank for that. Uh, yeah, amazing. one of the reasons this movie is one of our perfect films, aside from everybody hammering us every time we 
we talk about perfect films, they always say, <laughs> what about The Wizard of Oz? Those are really fighting words, so we can never, even if it wasn't our perfect film, we'd lie because right. they want to beat you up, you know? <laughs> this is such a well-loved film. So you talk about it transcending, I mean, definitely on Qualification 3, despite all the changes in our society, this has yeah, as it, much relevance. It also puts the distance on the book. Nobody was really interested in the book. But, and it'll probably start reading the book. Why don't we just get the movie, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, which is which to me is kind of sad because the book is, is as with many books that are turned into movies, the book is full of interesting characters and rich parts of the story that they couldn't make it into the movie. But the, one of the things I think that, that makes this a perfect film is because the book had already been around 40 years and was this beloved classic. So, I mean, they almost couldn't fail by making a film of it. Now, the ironic thing is they kind of did fail when it came out because the film was so expensive. It was almost $3 million at a time when most features were about $700,000. And this is Hollywood in all of its glory right before the war. Everything is in there. The kitchen sink. If you look carefully in there, you'll find the kitchen sink, of course. But it's color, technicolor. It's all the big actors, the contract players, the biggest stage at MGM's lot. But the, the problem that MGM had was because most of the audience was uh, kids, and they were all getting in for half price. They weren't making a whole lot of money on this. And the film really didn't start to show a profit for MGM until 1956 when CBS licensed it to show on television. And that's when the magic began for our culture. Everybody saw it every year. Everybody got mad at the witch. Everybody cried. Uh, everybody and everybody was, was really mortified at the, the, at the flying, flying monkeys. monkeys. Oh. Ooh. To this day, it just gives me a little shiver to oh, see. Oh, you look at those monkeys. They, uh, they're nothing but no good. Man. <laughs> so there is absolutely no question that this film fully meets and almost surpasses the criteria that creates the world, totally sustains oh, it, yes. and has sustained its own relevance through this approaching, what are we, we're over, we're coming up on 70 years yes, since this was made. So um, It also got muscled out by quite a few other films in that year because that was a big hot year for American movies uh, coming out of Hollywood. Yeah, and What are those films, George? Why, let me tell you. Um, <laughs> in 1939, these are just a few minor ones that came out. Uh, Gone with the Wind, Hunchback of Notre Dame, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Ninotchka, Stagecoach, Destry Rides Again, Bojest, Gunga Din, Wuthering Heights, and Only Angels Have Wings. So some seriously stiff competition. In some ways, it's no wonder, because it had to be seen also as something very strange and bizarre. Was it? I mean... We don't know. We weren't around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. We pretend quite a bit. <laughs> I it almost didn't get made on several occasions, well, what, even after it was begun. Yes, I mean, the, the film was a fraught with, with disaster from the word go. I mean, they had four different directors. Um, ironically, the, the man who is credited on it actually is also credited as directing Gone with the Wind, but he was like the last minute save that it was brought in after a director like George Cukor couldn't deal with it anymore. And then the irony is he left Wizard of Oz, this is Victor Fleming, just so you know who it is. Yeah. Uh, he left the production of Wizard of Oz to go to Gone with the Wind because it was a mess. And they brought in King Vidor, another really great director, and... Probably the, the one of the best-loved parts of the movie, the Over the Rainbow sequence, was actually directed by King Vidor. 
And what most people don't realize is that MGM was a factory. They produced 66 films a year somewhere in that realm. So they punched out these films like they make Fords or Hondas nowadays um, in, a, in a big studio system that does not exist. All these players were contract players. They punched in every day and did their work three or four movies a year. Do you happen to know if the, um, it's Yip, is it Harburg? I always get his name wrong. Yip Harburg. Yip yeah. Harburg and the um, Arlen, the other fellow. Now, were they Arlen. on staff at, at uh, I mean, were they? they I mean, the home movies. That, yeah, I believe they were both. They both were on staff in MGM, as was Herbert Stodhart, who who actually got the I think a Academy Award for the score that we're listening to in the background. Yeah, you know, I think that we haven't necessarily addressed it as a portion of the rules, but also the music for these oh, films man. that are without the music, perfect. this movie would not exist. It's <clears throat> really incredible, isn't it? It, it is it's remarkable. Over the Rainbow is, is really made people's careers blossom like when Willie Nelson did Stardust Memories. One of the songs that propelled that that record out of nowhere was that song. Mm -hmm. And there is a, if you if you get the uh, <clears throat> the disc that's just come out by Warner Brothers, they have an uh, an excerpt of, of Judy Garland singing Over the Rainbow when she's being tortured in the chamber and everything. I dare you. To, I just dare you to listen to that and not cry. I dare you. it was taken out of the movie. It was right, too it was, disturbing was to children. Oh. Yeah. And speaking of things that were cut out of the movie, um, Over the Rainbow had been cut out of the movie because the, the, <laughs> they, they looked at it and said, this is boring. This is too slow. We've got, and they, we've got this great jitterbug number. So... <laughs> <laughs> which, had this, which is really atrocious. You can <laughs> pick this up. Yeah, this, this the great, you know, this great jitterbug number that took them weeks to shoot, and by the time they finished the film, the term jitterbugging had already come and gone as a fad, and they realized, oh, this is going to date the movie, which I find really amazing for this era. Yeah. Uh, so they lopped out the jitterbug number, and suddenly the movie's too short, and they're like, well, I guess we'll put Over the Rainbow back in. It's boring. Yeah, and, and we laugh about movie. this to this day, but there's somebody in an office back in 1938 in a wool suit just really feeling the heat, you know? <laughs> <laughs> we got to cut this song. It's not going to make the movie go. <laughs> We're talking to J. Todd Anderson, a storyboard artist to some of the best films that we've all seen, and also George Willeman, who is, among other things, the film archivist for the Library of Congress. It's a little something we call filmically perfect and today we're talking about the wizard of oz so it really is a full package it not only creates the world sustains it and then has sustained itself through time but the music is incredible the performances are great oh yeah i mean i think it not only sustains itself but it just continues to grow yeah. i mean uh, the magic of television punched it through but yeah. it's still got a more lives to live i think i mean you look at the just the the, the produce out there the the products and, and games and dolls and toys and whatnot that this film continues to generate is just truly astonishing. You know, I was an adult <clears throat> having seen the movie, uh, I don't know, I would say probably two dozen times. It was a yearly event in our home when oh, you yeah. said it was ABC that would uh, broadcast it. CBS and NBC. CBS. And actually, all, I, most of the networks had it at one time or another. So, I mean, it was a big deal. And the film deal. was almost lost. Really? Tell us, George. How was really? that film? Three strip Tatnacolor, which means they have three negatives for everything to make this beautiful color that you're never going to see ever again. There's a few films like On the Wind, but how was this film almost lost, George? Well, the story <laughs> the story goes, um, well, I'll tell you, the, the original negative is now stored at the George Eastman House up in Rochester, New York. And the reason that it is there is that at some point in the past, many years past, the, uh, the management of MGM decided they wanted to get rid of all the nitrate material they were holding because it was a fire hazard. And so they had made plans to truck it out somewhere and just have it destroyed. And <gasps> the, uh, they, the people who were in charge of George Eastman House 
found out about this and somehow managed to divert this collection from the dump to the George Eastman house. They took all of the films, not just... Right. I mean, they have Gone with the Wind also. Oh, my goodness. Um, so, yes, they still have the the, uh, the original. And, and actually, we at one point were uh, storing the negative of Wizard of Oz for G- George Eastman house at the vaults in here in Dayton. And how many rooms did that take? Uh, it was a big negative because, you know, it was... Uh, Three negatives for 30, 30 some reels of film, but it was in, in beautiful condition. And wow. it still is to this day. I mean, if you see the DVD, that mainly it comes is. off of that material. And if you get a chance to see it projected anywhere in this country, go see it because you're going to see stuff you never saw. Uh, and, and you'll see strings and, you know, the t- lion's tail string. That oh. Never takes away from the performance of the tail because the tail is really good, you know. But, yeah. Uh, hey, something that I noticed because we were talking about it with the searcher last year about these, these little um, uh, sort of visual devices that are used. I was an adult before I realized that the first part of the movie and the last part of the movie is not in color. And I'd seen it all these times. I mean, I so fully went along with just the mood of I the story. Up, I grew up on black and white TV. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Oh, I did too. Until I was like 26, I figured that out. Right, but I think <laughs> even after seeing it, I didn't yeah. appreciate it. Well, what, one of the most interesting things is that when the film was originally released, the opening and closing reels were sepia-toned, which meant that the black and white film was, was bathed in a chemical that replaced the um, the silver with a, a another metal that that gave a brownish color. So um, in the 50s, when they started reissuing it, they they quit doing the sepia toning, so the opening reels would be black and white. Okay. And what happens is one of the best optical tricks in the whole movie is going from the sepia toning to the color, because if you watch it now, and now Warner Brothers has restored it with the sepia toning in the beginning, so it becomes seamless. It goes right from the sepia into color. It's beautiful. The, yes. the first shot of the first reel of color is designed to look just like sepia. Everything is bathed in a brown light, and I think actually the actress you see, I, I'm, I'm betting, is not Judy Garland, but probably her stand-in, dressed in an exact costume, but in brown. So that so she they comes up to the door. The roll, the reels right, the real switch, real switch, and they're now color, but everything still looks sepia tone. She goes up, and she opens that door, and the color comes flooding in from outside. And you can see if you see it done with the sepia all the way through, it's truly astonishing piece of work. That's the way it's supposed to work, man. Because mm-hmm. yeah. I remember the first it. time I saw it in color, it was the opening and closing are black and white, and it's so obvious you're going like, oh, that's stupid. Yeah, you know? yeah. But how funny, though, that we had done the searchers last week, that there was also this door yep. aspect where mm-hmm. the door opens and exactly. changes everything. Ah, oh, you're learning, eh? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's something we call filmically perfect, and uh, on a Friday we have opportunity to discuss films that, uh, in the estimation of J. Todd Anderson and George Williman, are perfect in every way. Not a ranking system, it's not a competition. And how many of you quote this movie on, you know, maybe a daily basis? And how many people use... Surrender Dorothy or Oh, yeah. oh Water World, Shrug Water has World. A song, yeah. uh, you know, when she was saying goodbye to the uh, the Scarecrow, I, I watched it again. Have a last little night. fire scarecrow? Yeah. <laughs> but when she said, I think I'll miss you most of all, I, I started to tear up. I mean, it just has such impact. Even, I know that movie. Like and the, the dog, again, hat. causes all the problems, man. <laughs> that, the mangy little dog. You're a mangy dog, too. But she also, but he also... Uh, not an attractive He's dog. also the tool that, that rescues her at the end because he runs off and finds the... The three, the three buddies to go and and, and you know her. this is back before the SPCA, SPCA, so they keep putting him in a picnic basket. So 
you right, know, right. mindless picnic <laughs> basket. Let's just put them in here. That'll keep them. It jumps out again, of course. <laughs> just for fun, let's hear a little uh, of uh, the portion of the movie where uh, Dorothy meets the scarecrow, the one who she will ultimately miss most of all. Just a little, uh, little excerpt from The Wizard of Oz on Filmically Perfect on WYSO. Now which way do we go? Pardon me. That way is a very nice way. Who said that? Don't be silly, Toto. Scarecrows don't talk. It's pleasant down that way, too. That's funny. Wasn't he pointing the other way? Of course, people do go both ways. Why, you did say something, didn't you? Are you doing that on purpose? Or can't you make up your mind? That's the trouble. I can't make up my mind. I haven't got a brain. Only straw. How can you talk if you haven't got a brain? I don't know. But some people without brains do an awful lot of talking, don't they? Yes, I guess you're right. Well, we haven't really met properly, have we? Why, no. How do you do? How do you do? Very well, thank you. Oh, I'm not feeling at all well. You see, it's very tedious being stuck up here all day long with a pole up your back. Oh, dear, that must be terribly uncomfortable. Can't you get down? Down? No, you see, I'm, well, I'm... Oh, well, here, let me help you. Oh, that's very kind of you. Very kind. Well, oh, dear, I don't quite see how I can... Of course, I'm not bright about doing things. But if you'll just bend the nail down in the back, maybe I'll slip off and come... Oh, yes. Oh! Whoops! <laughs> there goes some of me again. Oh, does it hurt you? Oh, no, I just keep picking it up and putting it back in again. <laughs> My, it's good to be free. Oh, oh, oh. Did I scare you? No, no. I, I just thought you hurt yourself. But I didn't scare you? No, of course not. I didn't think so. Who? Cat. Who? You see, I can't even scare a crow. They come from miles around just to eat in my field and, and laugh in my face. Oh, I'm a failure because I haven't got a brain. Well, what would you do with a brain if you had one? Do? Why, if I had a brain, I could... And we know the rest of the story. It's filmically perfect. We're reviewing The Wizard of Oz on 91.3 WYSO. You know, a lot of movies, uh, uh, they borrow from this movie, and they use it. Like, if you if you notice, there's a lot of stuff that really resembles Wizard of Oz in other movies. You Even know? The, like the, carrier, the character set up, the relative uh, relationships between. Now, I don't know yeah. if the brothers meant this, but in Oh Brother, they, uh, they dress up like Klansmen. They do a very interesting dance. It's similar to the Wizard, Wizard of Oz. Oh, is that know? right? But there's also a lot of things. There's some myths in this movie, and there's, some, there's a real interesting facet that Mr. Williman is going to tell us about. <laughs> well, I feel almost as my duty to talk about the one big myth surrounding this movie. Uh, in the scene where they meet the Tin Woodsman, people have been saying for years that there is a workman hanging from a rope in the background. No, it's not a workman hanging from a rope. It's a large bird, a crane that they brought in because it looked kind of exotic. <laughs> um, but the the story that I want to uh, tell everyone about uh, is that, when, again, it's kind of an urban legend. But uh, the story goes that um, Frank Morgan, playing the wizard, uh, 
was given as part of his costume this old kind of threadbare morning coat, and you see him wearing it in the film. And um, one day, uh, sitting on the set, he just started going through the pockets because he had nothing else to do. He was waiting for his cues. And, and uh, he looked inside the coat pocket and found the name of the original owner, which was L. Frank Baum, the author of Wizard of Oz. And uh, supposedly after the film was wrapped, they took the coat and they gave it back to, uh, to Mrs. Baum. Uh, the widow, widow yes. who apparently confirmed that it was indeed the coat. But yep. then I heard some interesting commentary on the on the thing that there are people that, that confirmed that, but others that right. vehemently deny it. But and that the uh, flying monkey wouldn't take the coat off. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it should be true, even if it isn't. <laughs> and as as one little real quick piece of useless trivia, they're never named in the film, but the witches' guards, the big scary looking guards, yeah, they're called Winkies. <laughs> they Winkies. live on the west side of yeah. Oz. <laughs> The Winkies from the West, yes. <laughs> I love also that Wicked Witch of the West is WWW. Oh. We've been talking about... And Frank Morgan was originally supposed to be played by... Well, W.C. Fields was supposed to play the wizard <gasps> originally, yes. And Bonnie Epson, originally the Tin originally Man, but he had a, like a skin disease. Well, they used aluminum powder. I mean, this was back yeah. when... No latex, no plastic. And everything was plaster and everything was leather. And, uh, Not amazing. And this is heavy-duty uh, filmmaking in 1938. Almost 70 years later, it's got us talking and probably will for years and years to come. That's why we call it Filmically Perfect. Speaking with J. Todd Anderson and George Williman here, a little movie segment that uh, I think we got some great plans for. What do we next next time around we got something special? Yes, next week we're going to start um, a new idea, a new series of guilty pleasures. <laughs> Films that are probably far from perfect that we love, but we're embarrassed that people know to let people know that we love them. Yeah, you don't want to watch them in front of your parents, you know. Right, definitely. Even no matter what age you are because they it know, all keeps right? coming back, you know. <laughs> So next time, Guilty Pleasures on uh, our movie segment here on Fridays on 91.3 WYS. Thank you for listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Please keep an ear out for new episodes of Filmically Perfect, coming very soon to iTunes and hosted on our website, www.perfectmovie.net. See you, please?